Hey chatters, are you tired of scrolling endlessly through Netflix and other services looking for something to watch? Something fulfilling? Introducing DocPlay, the world's best documentary films and factual series, all in one place. If you're a political junkie like our dear leaders, we're sure you'll have no trouble getting stuck into films like Wiener, The Brink and Citizen Jane. Prefer something longer? How about Whitlam's The Power and the Passion or the Keating interviews? We even have all of Crab's kitchen cabinets and the house. Dogplay has something for everyone looking to dig deeper on topics like fashion, crime, biographies, music, the environment, and much, much more. Give us a try today. Visit dogplay.com slash chatters and get 45 days free access. That's D-O-C-P-L-A-Y dot com slash chatters. Get digging. Listeners, I'm here with Annabelle Crabb. Oh, hi there. Oh, I was Why do we do that sort of? Mm. I don't know. Sometimes we just do. Yeah. Um, I'm just. I'm already just fiddling with my phone. I'm bored already. That was what I was about to say. I was about to say, listeners, I'm sitting here in Annabelle yeah. Crab's lounge room. She's just ignoring me while she spools through her Listen, other friend. Her I'm phone. just. I'm organising. My parents are staying at the moment. Um, so is my sister-in-law. Um, organising to catch up with them. Also, my daughter's birthday party. Uh, just you know. Life I, never stops, and I sometimes I find it more interesting to do administrivia than talk to you. <laughs> what? Can I? It's one of those acts. I'm just going to forgive that, like I yeah. spoke about in the last just podcast. Forgive it. Just forgive it. Forgive it. Um, can I read aloud something to you that made me think of us? Yeah, you could. <laughs> it's from David Mitchell. I new love book. David Mitchell, and he's, the fact that he's written a new book is um, good he, news. He's so good. It's called "Dishonesty is the Second Best Policy," and so it's about the sort of opening essay is about how you know lying can actually be quite, you know, helpful. Okay, paying attention. Personally, I lie quite often, mainly about whether I am free to attend social events. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Can't imagine anyone I know doing that. (laughs) It's all because the phrase, I can come but I don't want to, seems not to be permitted. There's no way of dressing that sentiment up so that it's socially acceptable. I'll have a go though. It's so kind of you to invite me and I am sincerely grateful for the thought, but on that day, I know I will be tired and would prefer to stay at home and I very much doubt that you'd really want me to come if I really didn't want to myself. So if it's okay, I won't. You see, won't do. At best, you'd get some sort of diagnosis and you'd hurt the inviter's feelings and the inviter would think less of you. That's the real kicker. So there's nothing for it, but thanks so much. I'd love to come, but sadly I've got to insert lie here. It's the only way of availing yourself of your liberty not to attend without breaking social convention. If you believe in freedom and you don't want people to think you're a dick, sorry, that's my brother. If you believe in freedom and you don't want people to think you're a dick and the vast majority of us fall into this category, you've got to lie and lie well. It's a bit crazy, really. As a consequence, we live in a world in which ostensibly everyone wants to go to everything they're invited to. They always want to, but sometimes they just can't. The notion of people not wanting to go to parties that they're actually free to attend is not openly acknowledged by our society. (laughs) It's like prostitution in the Victorian age. It's happening everywhere, but everyone pretends it isn't. (laughs) Can I just keep reading on? Yes. Case In the case of the Party Invitation Response Convention, that means there is no language for effectively expressing sincere gratitude for an invitation to an event that you genuinely would like to go to but genuinely can't. All the phrases you might use for expressing that have been stolen by lying excuse makers like me. (laughs) 
Some societies in this kind of fix would develop a helpful etiquette. I'm sorry, but I can't make it would mean I don't want to come, but you're not allowed to hate me. While I'm so sorry, but I really can't make it would express genuine gratitude and regret. But that's not how we roll these days. The really would be instantly co-opted by the insincere brigade course, to make yeah. their lies more believable and reduce their reputational jeopardy, just as every politically correct term for mental illness ever devised from cretin onwards has been co-opted as a term of abuse. He's <laughs> <laughs> so brilliant. I would, I would really love somebody to just sit down and write the rules of engagement. Like, I mean, maybe mm. Mitchell. Maybe this book includes that. Maybe, yeah. He strikes me as the type who would come up and, with something. And we could set up like an international ombudsperson for, look, I'm sorry, uh, you've, you've cast the net too wide there. Uh, it's not cool to say, oh, what, you can't make it on that date? That's great. Let's do it on the, same, like the, the following day because that's a bit of dirty pool. I mean, I think really the policy with all of this, and I don't uh, actually obey my own policy enough, which is how I get myself into trouble. You know where like someone writes to you inviting you to something or asking you to do something and you think, oh, I don't really want to go but I don't really also – want to say no it's um, a long way in advance and just so make sure you, the diary's empty and so then you leave it and leave it and leave it and then by the time you actually come back it's too rude to write back saying no because you know mm. you've left it so long and so you say yes and then you despise yourself and them and that's a good healthy response so like the quick no is the second best possible response oh that for sure 100 and yeah. if i was better at yeah um, people always appreciate a quick no um where do you think the global ombudsman would come down on fancy dress parties? Because I have a very hard no on dressing up for parties. I'd rather not attend. <laughs> Just thinking of all the parties I could now plan, <laughs> counting on your non-attendance. I saw this great article the other day about this is sorry this is a slight uh, digression about this subculture in Japan. Mm. Can't remember what it's called. Um, but it's this movement that celebrates Halloween by um, dressing up as people in completely mundane situations. So, oh. so it's a costume, but it's like you're dressed as a normal human being, you know, like. <laughs> so uh, there's one, there was like all these photographs of these costumes and they have these parties where, Halloween parties, where they are all dressed up as totally mundane things. So like um, woman who's stepped from a warm place into a cold place and her glasses are fogged up. Uh, woman oh. who, woman who uh, went to the supermarket, got a trolley, but then didn't really get enough stuff to warrant the trolley. <laughs> so good. Oh, my God, that is <laughs> You know, man whose pen has leaked in his pocket. Like just that it's is, so hysterical. That is the person who got pooed on by a bird. But Yeah, that totally, is, yeah. That is hilarious. What, yeah. Who came up with yeah, that? Yeah, person who's run into someone whose name they can't quite remember. Oh, that yeah. is just hilarious. Um, I think I should have a party next Halloween. And do oh, just, you won't come, though. And just person who's agreed, accidentally agreed to come to a party but is already regretting it. Oh, <laughs> that great. That could be your like, outfit. That's me. That could just be you. <laughs> you see? See, the reason I object to having to go to a dress-up party is because I just believe it adds to my mental load. It's just one more thing I've got to worry about in a world where doesn't everyone have enough to worry about? Now we have to worry about yeah, finding you know a costume what? for a party. The reason that you're unable to cope with this otherwise unremarkable addition <laughs> to your mental load is because you've got someone who does a spreadsheet for what you wear every day. So you are de-skilled. You are de-skilled. <laughs> you are no good 
at something really basic that the rest of us have to deal with every single day, oh, which is hilarious. what am I going to wear today? Uh, well, I picked this You've outfit You've got Chris that I'm who's wearing. got like, oh, well, what does the spreadsheet say? Excel says today you're wearing this jacket and I, this skirt. I picked this what I'm wearing right now. You look lovely. And you said you liked it. I did. So there you Mate, go. I'm not judging own. what your decisions are. <laughs> I just my own wardrobe. Observing. Picked my own clothes. That because for the your whatever neural muscle it is <laughs> that you keep in limber shape by, in my case, consulting my floor robe every day and working out whether that <laughs> grubby top's got one more day's wear in it. And well, that one sadly the one that I've now spilled tea, tea on is no good. Um, no, it's a different part of your brain because you've got to think up an idea for the costume, then you've got to source the costume. It just makes me want to punch the person whose idea it was. I bet you love Book Week. I really do not like Book Week. Book Week's like a panther. Book Week's like a panther that is poised to spring every time you're about to have a nervous breakdown like yep. in my house and I hate the way it also really comes quite close to Halloween and often quite close to um, our like school performance concert thing like so you quite some years you get a triple whammy of book week school concert and <laughs> Halloween and then you get a cheeky harmony day at the end of that and then it's just like Oh, and then man, you get a friend going, oh, we're having such such a party. Um, book week, I always feel guilty, though, when I go to actual book parade because everyone seems to be having such an awesome time and the teachers have all gone to so much effort. Yeah. And I think, why do you have to be such a miserable old bag that you just bitch, 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 bitch about this the whole time? Yeah. It's because I am a miserable old bag. You are a bit, yeah. Maybe I could come to a party dressed as a miserable old bag. Yeah. Just Would require myself. minimal disguise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> require very little mental load. Just come with a sort of pre-soured expression. Now, I have been listening to – that Dolly Part oh, podcast. Of you have, yeah. You've been listening to it too. I have. I, I, Are you loving I, it? I cannot tell a lie. Yeah, I am. Do I oversell it. or is it? No, I'm just, I'm chagrined to admit that it is every bit as good as you it's, advertised. Why is it so good? Like, mm. it's just, it's so interesting. It's so good because it makes you think about Dolly and what a bizarre phenomenon she is. And starting off early, I learnt so much about her. Well, I mean, everybody knows the log cabin story, right? But like just about her start in showbiz and her kind of philosophy on life and the bizarre unifying feature that she is on the showbiz landscape. Because, I mean, she was sort of casually ridiculed for so long, mm. you know, boobs and, you know, plastic surgery and whatever. But the narrator of the podcast makes a really interesting point early on, which is if you go to a Dolly concert, it's just like this total soup of different mm. people. Like she's got this sort of appeal that moves across politics, it moves across race, moves across religion, mm. age. And that is a kind of in this increasingly stratified world, a really, really rare thing. Mm, for sure. And the most recent episode goes into this um, – attitude that she has where she doesn't talk about politics. Oh, it was fascinating. So they call it dolitics, which yeah. is how she just skirts around anytime she's asked about Trump or political questions yeah. or whatever. And um, how she explained and why she explained um, that she, why she won't engage reminded me so much of my own attitude to it and our attitude yeah. to it in the Chat 10 look, sorry, Facebook group, which is we want it to be, we want this thing to be inclusive mm. and once people start talking about politics, it, it becomes yeah. exclusionary because people disagree. And so they think, oh, you, you seem like a lovely person, but as soon as you scratch a little bit deeper and you discover, what, but you voted for so-and-so yeah. and I, I thought you were a nice person and then you can't sort of get beyond that. Um, and also, you know, for me, I sort of think 
I mean, I know this is an old-fashioned view in journalism and it's starting to go out of vogue, I think, but I feel like I, when I became a journalist that I chose to give up the right to have public opinions on mm. um, the kind of issues that I report about because I view my job as presenting information to the public without trying, you know, trying as best I can to keep my opinion out of it so that it allows other people to make up their Their own own minds what to think without being too heavily influenced by me. And so while, you know, I have obviously opinions on some things that I report on, some more strong than others, I do the best job I can to not infect my reporting with those opinions. Um, And Dolly's view in this podcast is, you know, I'm an entertainer. I'm there to entertain people. I'm not there to um, tell people what to think about things like that. And I don't want to blur the lines. And also she's quite open in admitting there's a big risk involved with that as, you know, the Dixie Chicks experienced. But I'd be interested to know what you think of – they played a clip of the – was it the Golden Globe Awards or something? And it was for the first time on stage since nine to five, Jane Fonda, Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin. Yeah. They all got to the stage and Jane Fonda immediately went on a really big anti-tramp yeah. tramp Trump rant. Yeah. Um and Lily Tomlin joined in and Dolly was silent. And Dolly got a bit of um she was Dolly was the only one who got any blowback about yeah. it. Um because people, you know, some of her country radio fans felt like she should have had something to say in defense of Trump. Right. Other people felt like why didn't she join in with Jane yeah. and whatnot. And so she was sort of criticised for her position of just not wanting to yeah. speak out. Um, and I was sort of a bit annoyed actually at one of the podcast producers who asked her something like, do you feel that not speaking out, you know, is hurtful to people that you don't take a side? And I I sort of felt like that's such a judgy question, mm. um, like saying that, you know, basically pick a side, yeah. I'm telling you to pick a side. And I thought the way Dolly explained her approach to all of it was interesting. But I also, sorry, what I was going to ask you about was um, I felt annoyed at Jane Fonda because I felt like friends, why would a friend do that to another friend and put them in such an awkward position? But then I felt a bit torn because I felt like, well, everyone knows who Jane Fonda is. Right, so yeah. why should Jane Fonda have to not say what she actually thinks? Why should Dolly expect that of Jane Fonda? Yeah. I don't know. I think there is there's a feeling of compulsion. I think that a lot of people who get to a certain degree of kind of public, you know, profile think that they've got to somehow use that to achieve other things or to um, you know achieve a significance in some way that is beyond what people look to them for. I'm I'm never massively convinced by that analysis. I think that um, people can get to the point where they sort of fancy that their opinion is invaluable like you know mm. that no, the world can't do without my opinion on this mm. yeah um, that's true and i just when we're talking before about um you know about the effect that the absence of political debate on has had on our um facebook group i think that we wandered into that kind of a bit accidentally like i mean we just really made that decision because mainly of your job and mm. partly because of mine um, because you could never, ever rule out that there'd be sort of some massive argument in the Facebook group that bears our names the same night that you're interviewing somebody and, totally. you know, and that becomes very difficult for you to navigate. So we, it was the way that we could, you know, establish that group and also 
show respect to our employer and to, you know, the job that that, um, you do every night. But one thing that was unexpected about that, and we sort of said, well, you can argue about politics anywhere else on the internet. I mean, Mm. we we have no shortage of opportunities for doing that. Um, But the thing that really I think sprang up as a result of that is like once you've removed one of the biggest sort of um, uh, breeding grounds for argument – what grew instead was this rather lovely subculture of kindness and mm. um, uninterrupted by the sort of disagreement that you can find anywhere else. Yeah, so, and it's a bit of a respite from yeah. all of that stuff. And we were talking about this on the Australia Talks broadcast because, you know, the most the most unifying finding of that survey, the one proposition with which most Australians um, out of all of the questions, were in agreement was that people should show each other more respect, and um, you know I think now the opportunities for hand to hand fighting with people that you've never met are just mm. um, unprecedented, mm. um, thanks to the internet. And I think in the old days where you'd have arguments, you usually had them in the context of people that you already knew or your community, and there'd be this buffer or there'd be this sort of automatic stabilizers of, oh, well, I've got to keep in mind I've got to live in this community. I've got mm, to yeah. because I, you know, want to keep receiving milk from the milkman or the, you know, whatever. Mm. You you have to moderate and contextualize your own views yeah. and arrive at some sort of peaceful resolution. Whereas now the corks out of that bottle, like, you know, you've got mm. no obligation to, you know, some anonymous person that you're fighting with on Twitter or social media, whatever. And I think that as a result, maybe we don't kind of think actively about how to maintain a courteous um, mm. relationship with the world around us. Uh, yeah, I think that's completely true. Mm. And also you when people in real life have strongly held opinions about things, you might think, well, they're a really nice person and that passion, you know, that one-eyed passion comes out of the fact that they really care. Mm. Um, or their cantankerousness today is because they're caring for their elderly mother who's on her last mm. legs. And so you bring a mm. bigger context to it. Mm. Whereas I see people sometimes on Twitter in particular ranting about something and I just feel annoyed by them because I don't know them. And mm. so I just think, oh, how can you have such a, you know, one-eyed view of a certain yeah. issue or whatever? And yeah. I just think it. they seem like, you know, stupid annoying people but actually I'm sure they're not yeah but that's just the only little you know 140 characters that I get of their entire the slice of their life with the Dolly podcast have you listened to the episode where it's about the song Tennessee Mountain Home yeah yeah I found that so moving and I mean one of the things that's interesting about this podcast and why it works is I mean I just think the insights they're able to reach are really fascinating and they're making some bold decisions like in the Tennessee Mountain Home episode they go to visit the cabin that she grew up in Mm. and then the host of the show chooses to interview his own father about his home in Lebanon and when he sort of goes off on this digression I thought wow this is a bold call because you could be accused of being self-indulgent but he is making the point that the song Tennessee Mountain Home is really a very beloved song and people in all sorts of countries feel a connection to it even though they have no experience whatsoever of the Smoky, Smoky Mountains right. or the thing that Dolly Parton's yeah. singing about. Um, but he talks about his father and he, he says his father tells him his father's a surgeon in the US and he says every time I go home to Lebanon, including you know last time when I was there for some work conference, I got to my hotel at 10pm and I got a cab to take me straight to the house where I grew up and I just sat out the front for an hour and just looked at it. Um, and... 
it was sort of making the point about connection to home um, and how that's what that song is about. So regardless of whether your home was anything like that, that sense of where you grew up, that you maintain that deep, deep connection to it. And he just – Using his father just illustrated the point so brilliantly and effectively and it was so moving hearing the father talk about getting the cab in Lebanon at 10 o'clock at night. But the other really moving thing about that exchange was that the son, the narrator of the podcast, and the background is that he actually met Donnie, Dolly through his dad because mm. Dolly had a fall and kind of like the, the dad, who isn't a sort of celebrity doctor no, of the stars, just, some, just happened to be there. Yeah. Somehow, weirdly enough, really hit it off with Dolly and they became friends. Mm. Um, and so, but the the amazing thing about that exchange was that listening to, like, the, the son had no idea that his dad felt like that mm. about the place where he grew up. And mm. he said, but like, you just seemed to be a citizen of America. You never mm. talked much about where you grew up or what it was like. And I didn't really feel like this was something that had a massive grip on you. And the dad just said, well, you know, who would I have talked about with it? You know, wh- mm. Who would I have talked um, with about it? Mm. And it was such a like, – yeah, what it was a really powerful story about was moving and leaving places behind and mm. um and having this little time capsule of memory held um and kind of treasured deep inside. See, I remember when you did that home delivery show with Julia Zemiro, oh, her yeah. saying you were the only person whose childhood home was still their parents' home today. Right. And yeah. so you still go to your childhood home yeah. all the time. Yeah. So I wonder does that that memory still like is that fresher for you because you're there all the time or actually doing that program made me think about it a lot more than I ever have really and mm. about how unusual that is and how lucky I am to still be able to go back there um and I mean seeing the place that you grew up change you know um gradually rather than going back oh, there yeah. for a big shock after 30 years or whatever <clears throat> is I think a different sort of process it kind of I mean well because I grew up in um in the country you know I've seen the way the landscape change has changed I've seen the way you know the climate Mm. has changed I've seen the way that the community has changed and um the people who live there and the ethnic breakdown of you know all Mm. of that um so um I think that and I found that that whole filming a process quite emotionally stirring like I remember when I went to do it you said you'll burst into tears about three hours afterwards Mm. Uh, and of course I did and not because it was upsetting or you know it sort of stirred up great trauma it's just like the the sediment of your life to Mm. just go and poke around in it and talk about it for six hours is just like this real it's just yeah it's it's really unusual uh, as a sensation yeah and yeah, I felt the same. It was hard. I found it quite – it wasn't hard at the time. I think it was hard in hindsight. Yeah. Are you feeling like you need some wax <laughs> for your crack? Well, you've come to the right place. I can't even. Wow. All right. Uh, well, the thing is that after a kind of conversation in which you revealed your ignorance about um, wax, beeswax wraps, uh, Quentin Blake has gone out and made – uh, really, quite a large number of um, beeswax wraps in the chat ten 
uh, vibe. Known as uh, crack wax. Crack wax. We make yep. a lot of crack. Yeah. So, um, crack, sack and wax sort of thing. Yeah. So we've um, already sold a whole ton of them. But that's because she put them up and just said, would anyone be interested in these? And then they all sold out. So she's got some more. And because we just want it to be fair, they're going to be on sale at the Chat 10 Looks 3 site shop uh, as soon as this podcast logs. So you can go there, chat10looks3.com, click on the shop button. There's more um, wax wrap crack things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For sale. Get them like they're Ed Sheeran tickets. For, all for sale. Go! And if you do, they've got... Um, Resale value just limitless, zero. really. <laughs> um, for every one of them sold, we're donating to Oz Harvest, and for every one wrap sold, it's an extra five one. additional meals. Well, one, one, one uh, pack... One pack. Crack, wax, wraps, actually. That is what generates the five additional meals that this great organisation, Odds Harvest, um, provides to underprivileged people. So if you need crack waxing or just a crack wax. This is your one-stop shop. This is it. What's this Rachel Cusk essay? Oh, yeah. So, um... Our friend Sebastian Smee forwarded it to me. He's a great fan of Rachel Cusk. He wrote um, a quarterly essay, um, a couple of essays back, um, which drew a bit on Rachel Cusk and various other things. He's a, a very great art critic, of course, in the States. Um, and he sent me this piece that um, Cusk wrote for the New York Times. And the title, I mean, I just absolutely ate it up with a spoon, this article that's so interesting and thought-provoking. And, of course, because it's written by Rachel Cusk, it is just written like a – it's like a beautiful sculpture. Yeah. Um, And the title of the piece is called – it's called um, Can a Woman Who's an Artist Ever Be Just an Artist? And so she starts off talking about this um, recent documentary of Giacometti where, like, he's this incredible physical force, you know, Mm. kind of – dramatic, violent, erratic, you know, like the art monster that we've discussed so many times. Yeah. And it devolves this article into a very thoughtful profile of two women artists. Um, And the one that I found most interesting was um, a woman called Celia Paul, who is a painter. She lives in London. She um, grew up in a kind of like a missionary family, was extremely um, talented as an artist, but very, very green as a person when she moved to London and went to art school. And she was 18 and her one of her teachers was Lucian Freud, uh, with whom she kind of developed this incredibly intense relationship and then a sexual relationship with, right? And she was involved with him uh, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And um, Freud bought her – an apartment in which she now lives, it's a tiny little apartment. Um, and one of the things that this article picks apart is just her identity as Freud's muse, mm. um, her and the way she her function was kind of um, a, she was defined by her relationship with this powerful man, you know. And so Cusk is just looking at the way women artists are construed. And she says, um, there's a great line, you know, in the story of art, woman attains the status of pure object. So she's looking at the way these two women artists, the other one that she talks about is um, Cecily Brown, who's an American artist, um, who who was told when she was 21 that her mother's friend that she um, 
had a fascinating relationship with and um, was a bit of a mentor to her. David Sylvester, the um, art critic, was in fact her father. She Mm. didn't know that. Um, And so anyway, look, it's a completely intriguing article um, and it's full of just, you know, these stories of these women's lives but also looking at the way they kind of struggle to extract themselves and their identities from these powerful men with whom they're kind of intimately associated one way or another. Mm, okay, that sounds good. It's really good. Have you, I just bookmarked the other day, I think she had a novel came out this year called Arlington Park or Arlington Road or something like that, Rachel Cusk. Have you read it? Is there a new one? Right, the last one I read was Transit, but I'll just give a little great if there is a new one. Um, yeah. Have you got anything else that you want to have a yap about? Um, look, I just – um, the Tennessee mountain home thing actually reminded me that I, um, I, on the advice of a chatter, I don't know, somewhere in the group I, someone was talking about this hilarious book that they read by um, Jenny Lawson yeah, um, called Let's Pretend This Never Happened. Yeah. And so Jenny Lawson is Amer- – she's sort of started out as an American blogger. Yeah. Um, and she <laughs> – I, mean, I picked up this book and I started reading it and it is incredibly funny and frenetic and – the reason that the Tennessee Mountain Home thing sort of reminds me of this is that she grew up, Jenny Lawson, in this um, – in Texas, very, very poor, um, crazy sort of mountain man um, uh, dad who was constantly adopting bobcats and he was a um, uh, – what is it when you when you stuff animals? Um, taxidermist. Taxidermist, you know, home taxidermist. And her – childhood was just full of these absolutely extraordinary stories because her dad's just totally bonkers and um, can I interrupt I'm totally wrong Arlington Park was written in 2006 okay I just became aware of it this right year then. in 2019 there you go you read all the time you still miss everything anyway How does that happen yep so anyway um but and she also writes really brilliantly about the experience of I mean she is she has a very atypical um psyche you know she's um Anxious, super anxious, but also um, very like she hates going to dinner parties. Is completely shy to the point of just neurosis, but also is like an extrovert in terms of the way that she writes and in the relationships she has with people that she knows. So she's a really complicated person and bursting to get out of all of her um, writing is this constant struggle with herself. And um, her mental health issues. Anyway, it's like an incredibly frenetic but very, very funny read. Of course. <laughs> That'd probably be my mum, actually. She's been oh. out for a walk. I'll go let her in. Just uh, talk among yourself for a okay, second. Okay, I'll just <laughs> I'll just give um, a commentary. So Crab's left the room. She's walked down the hallway. Um, she's left a slice of banana cake here that I could actually get into, I think. Let me hear if it's her mother. Hang on. I don't know. I think it was a man. I think it might be postal delivery or something of that. Otherwise, it's her lover arrived for an 11.30 a.m. meet-up. And sadly for him, I'm already here, monopolising her time to do the podcast. Um, just trying to think if there's anything I could talk about that Crab would have absolutely zero interest in hearing about. Um, but I'd like to think that most things that come out of my mouth that she would actually be interested in hearing about – Although I'm sure that is not the case. I continue to live under that uh, delusion. Oop, I hear the front door having been closed and she is now is returning. I am. It was the postie, was it? It was the postie. 
It sure it that was the postie. I suggested to the listeners while you were gone that perhaps it was your lover. Yes, it was. We had a quick knee trembler and he <laughs> handed over a, uh, a package, a package nice. which is now distracting me. Can I quickly, before we uh, wrap up, because I've got to go and uh, meet yes. somebody, um, just tell you quickly about two things. One is I listened to the first of Rachel. What's that book that's just around? Wow. What is it? The Driver's <gasps> Wife by Leah Purcell. Wow, Leah oh. Purcell. Hmm. Has written a novel? A novel. (gasps) All right. Okay. I want to read this instantly. Um, It's um, The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson. It's a brave reimagining of the Henry Lawson short story that's hmm. become an Australian classic. Oh, God, awesome. Can I quickly talk about Rachel Perkins? I listened to the first of her Boyer lectures. Oh, Um, right. Okay. So uh, I don't want to – Sort of like sometimes when we talk about things, I just want people to listen to it. I don't want to have to like verbal her. Right, but okay. broadly speaking, it is about um, her hope and basically about why Indigenous Australians remain hopeful um, for the future despite so many sort of aborted attempts to, you know, reach achieve reconciliation and things go forwards and they go backwards yeah. and they get told we're going to do this and then something changes and they do that. And why are they still for really hopeful? modest things and then have it degenerate yes. into this kind of insane yeah. So national. in the face of that, why is she still hopeful? And she oh, sort of okay. talks about that. It's really, really well framed. And I sort of ended it thinking God, that is just so generous and gracious and um, it was really interesting and I just I keep refreshing going, where's the second one? Where's the second one coming? Where's the second one coming? Oh, so cool. I just right. recommend it. Um, one thing I don't recommend, and, and hello to you, Paul Rudd, if you're listening, in case somebody in New York gets you <laughs> off. Oh, you know it. Paul Rudd's like, oh, finally they get to my book. Oh. <laughs> no, he's oh, got dear. a TV show called Living With Yourself. Now, I love Paul Rudd. He's one of my all-time favourites. He, he's just could not be more adorable. It strikes me as the type you'd probably like too, right? No comment. I'm eating banana bread now. Oh, but you, you would love Paul Rudd, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, he's got a show called Living With Yourself. It's on Netflix. The premise is that he goes to this clinic. He's just feeling glum and depressed and his life's just bleh. Goes to this clinic where one of his colleagues has been and he's sort of perked up massively and they do some sort of treatment. It's basically a sort of cloning type treatment. Um, it goes wrong and so then all of a sudden there's two Paul Rudds walking around. Oh, and, no, I did read a bit of those. I yeah. thought it seemed like an annoying premise. If you like liked films like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Didn't. Didn't either. Um, that sort of, you know, type of thing, it will be – more appealing to you than it is to me. I per- persevered with it for three episodes because I really wanted to like it because I just love Paul Rudd so much, but it just has not hooked me, unfortunately. Mm. Once again, you've ended things on a downer. I know. Um, and I feel bad about that because I just, it's hard for me to express my love for Paul Rudd. So, Paul, if you're listening, you know, it's just one little black mark against your name Otherwise. in a lifetime of just <laughs> upside. <laughs> so, wow. please don't rule out, you know, being my friend. <laughs> On the basis God, of this one disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite thing with Paul Rudd in it? Just, you know, desperately trying to rescue this otherwise real Um I generally find him the best thing about anything that he's in. I just – I find him funny. Um, I think he's cute. I loved him in um, – I think it was called I Love You, Man. It was a thing right. about – he was a guy who um, didn't – he realised he didn't really have any male friends and so he tries to become – tries to, to – Befriend a guy. Um, anyway, he's just – I just love him. What's your favourite Paul Rudd thing? I don't know. I'm just – i he feels a bit like I can remember the sort of person that he plays but I can't remember anything that he's in. Do you know what I mean? Like I like totally recognise him but then it's like 
He works pretty solidly, but yeah. yeah, you're right. It is sort of hard to immediately think of something, but That's nonetheless, cool. whenever he shows up in something, I go, oh, awesome, Paul Rudd. Oh, I've just got a new computer mm-hmm. and now it doesn't remember anything about me. So like it's constantly, oh. but it's got this weird thing where I can, to unlock it, I have to put my finger on a little pad thing. Oh, yeah. And so it really, yeah, you I can't got, steal my got identity iPad unless you well. chop off my finger. Yeah, and, um, I've got a new iPad as well and it does the same thing. Wow, so weird. The other thing is that – um. Jeremy, <laughs> see, I fear, loathe, and distrust Siri, right? Oh, yeah. But he's like, he really, you know, he thinks Siri needs to be a part of my life. So, so um, he made, he is very clever at these things. So he set it all up. Right. And he made me come into the room when he was setting up. And he was oh, going to so say, Siri knows said, your voice. And he said, now you have to say, like he pressed all the buttons that he said, now say, hey, Siri. But, of course, because I'm an idiot, I said, Hey, Siri! <laughs> so now in order to summon Siri, I have to say, Hey, Siri! Yeah, so. Oh, yeah. he's in Anchorman, of course. I'm oh, of course, at yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, the film I'm thinking of is um, I Love You, Man, 2009. Ant-Man, haven't seen that. Oh, I see, yeah, right. God, I've hardly seen any of these films. How do I know? Oh, which? Clueless, of course. Yeah, Clueless. Famous uh, films. Yeah, um, and that brief period when he was Prime Minister of Australia, that was pretty yeah, Obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, he's on Saturday Night Live, Parks and Recreation. Yeah. Anyway, he's just, he's absolutely adorable. He, he is. Who wouldn't love him? Yep. Okay, um, got to go. All right. See ya. See ya.